0: part two of five months of anzac by joseph Livesley beeston this librivox recording is in the public domain the anzac landing the horse-boats having been got overboard we continued our voyage towards what is now known as anzac troops australian and new zealanders were being taken ashore in barges warships were firing apparently as fast as they could load "'the Turks replying with equal cordiality. "'In fact, as Captain Dawson remarked to me, "'it was quite the most willing Sunday he had ever seen. "'Our troops were ascending the hills through a dwarf scrub, "'just low enough to let us see the men's heads, "'though sometimes we could only locate them "'by the glint of the bayonets in the sunshine. "'Everywhere they were pushing on in extended order, "'but many falling. "'The Turks appeared to have the range pretty accurately.' About midday our men seemed to be held up, with the Turkish shrapnel appearing to be too much for them. It is now that there occurred what I think one of the finest incidents of the campaign. This was the landing of the Australian artillery. They got two of their guns ashore, and over very rough country dragged them up the hills with what looked like a hundred men to each. Up they went, through a wheat field, covered and plastered with shrapnel, but with never a stop until the crest of the hill on the right was reached very little time was wasted in getting into action and from this time it became evident that we were there to stay the practice of the naval guns was simply perfect they lodged shell after shell just in front of the foremost rank of our men in response to a message asking them to clear one of the gullies one ship placed shell after shell up that gully each about a hundred years apart and in a straighter line as if they were ploughing the ground for johnny turk instead of making the place too hot to hold him the turks now began to try for this warship and in their endeavours almost succeeded in getting the vessel we were on as a shell burst right overhead the wounded now began to come back and the one hospital ship there was filled in a very short time every available transport was then utilised for the reception of casualties and as each was filled she steamed off to the base of Alexandria. As night came on we appeared to have a good hold of the place, and orders came for our bearer division to land. They took with them three days' iron rations, which consisted of a tin of bully beef, a bag of small biscuits, and some tea and sugar, Dixies, a tent, medical comforts, and, for firewood, all the empty cases we could scrape up in the ship. Each squad had a set of splints, and every man carried a tourniquet and two roller bandages in his pouch. Orders were issued that the men were to make the contents of their water bottles last three days, as no water was available on shore. The following evening the remainder of the ambulance less the transport was ordered ashore. We embarked in a trawler and steamed toward the shore in the glowing dusk, as far as the depth of water would allow. The night was bitterly cold, it was raining, and all felt this was real soldiering. None of us could understand what occasioned the noise we heard at times of something hitting the iron deck-houses behind us. At last one of the men exclaimed, They're bullets, sir! so that we were having our baptism of fire. It was marvellous that no one was hit, for they were fairly frequent, and we all stood closely packed. Finally, the skipper of the trawler, Captain Hubbard, told them he did not think we could be taken off that night, and therefore intended to drop anchor. He invited Major Meekler and myself to the cabin, where the cook served out hot tea to all hands. I have drunk a considerable number of cups of tea in my time, but that mug was very, very nice. The night was spent dozing where we stood, Paddy being very disturbed with the noise of the guns at daylight a barge was towed out and after placing all our equipment on board we started for the beach as soon as the barge grounded we jumped out into the water which was about waist-deep and got to dry land colonel manders the adms of our division was there and directed us up a gully where we were to stay in reserve for the time being meantime to take lightly wounded cases one tent was pitched and dugouts made for both men and patients, the Turks supplying shrapnel pretty freely. Our position happened to be in the rear of a mountain battery whose guns the Turks appeared very anxious to silence, and any shells the battery did not want came over to us. As soon as we were settled down, I had time to look round. Down on the beach, the first casualty clearing station under Lieutenant Colonel Giblin and the ambulance of the Royal Marine Light Infantry were at work. There were scores of casualties awaiting treatment, some of them horribly knocked about. It was my first experience of such a number of cases. In civil practice, if an accident took place in which three or four men were injured, the occurrence would be deemed out of the ordinary. But here there were almost as many hundreds, and all the flower of Australia it made one feel really that in the words of general sherman war is hell and it seemed damnable that it should be in the power of one man even if he be the german emperor to decree that all these men should be mutilated or killed the great majority were just coming into manhood with all their life before them the stoicism and fortitude with which they bore their pain was truly remarkable every one of them was cheery and optimistic it was not a murmur; the only requests were for a cigarette or a drink of water. One felt very proud of all these Australians, each waiting his turns to be dressed without complaining. It really quite unnerved me for a time. However, it was no time to allow the sentimental side of one's nature to come uppermost. I watched the pinnaces towing the barges in. Each pinnace belonged to a warship and was in charge of a midshipman. "'dubbed by his shipmates a snotty. "'This name originates from the days of Trafalgar. "'The little chaps appear to have suffered "'from chronic colds in the head, "'with the usual accompaniment "'of a copious flow from the nasal organs. "'Before addressing an officer, "'the boys would clean their faces "'by drawing the sleeve of their jacket across the nose. "'And I understand this practice so incensed Lord Nelson "'that he ordered three brass buttons "'to be sewn on the wristbands of the boys' jackets.' however this is by the way these boys of all ages from fourteen to sixteen were steering their pinnaces with supreme indifference to the shrapnel falling about disdaining any cover and as cool as if there were no such thing as war i spoke to one remarking that they were having a great time he was a bright chubby sunny-faced little chap and with a smile said isn't it beautiful sir when we started there were sixteen of us and now there are only six This is the class of men they make officers out of in Britain's navy, and while this is so, there need be no fear of the result of any encounter with the Germans. Another boy, bringing a barge full of men ashore, directed them to lie down and take all the cover they could, he meanwhile steering the pinnace and standing quite unconcernedly with one foot on the boat's rail. At Work on the peninsula casualties began to come in pretty freely so that our tent was soon filled we now commenced making dugouts in the side of the gully and placing the men in these meantime stores of all kinds were being accumulated on the beach stacks of biscuits cheese and preserved beef all of the best one particular kind of biscuit known as the forty-niners had forty-nine holes in it it was believed to take forty-nine years to bake and needed forty-nine chews to a But there were also beautiful hams and preserved vegetables, and with these and a tube of oxo a very palatable soup could be prepared. A well-known firm in England puts up a tin which they call an army ration, consisting of meat and vegetables nicely seasoned and very palatable. For a time this ration was eagerly looked for and appreciated but later on when the men began to get stale it did not agree with them so well it appeared to be too rich for many of us we had plenty of jam of a kind one kind oh how we used to revile the maker of damson and apples the damson coloured it and whatever they used for apple gave it body one thing was good all the time and that was the tea the brand never wavered and the flavour was always full maynard could always make a good cup of it it has been already mentioned that the water was not at first available on shore this was soon overcome thanks to the navy they conveyed water barges from somewhere which they placed along shore the water was then pumped into our water-carts and the men filled their water-bottles from them the water however never appeared to quench our thirst it was always better made up into tea or taken with lime-juice when we could get it. Tobacco, cigarettes, and matches were all on issue, but the tobacco was stuffed too like a band for me, so that Walkley used to trade off my share of the pernicious weed for matches. The latter became a precious commodity. I have seen three men light their pipes from one match. Captain Welsh was very independent. He had a burning-glass, and obtained his light from the sun after a few days the r m was ordered away and we were directed to take up their position on the beach a place for operating was prepared by putting sandbags at each end the roof being formed by planks covered with sandbags and loose earth stanchions of four by four timber were driven into the ground with cross-pieces at a convenient height the stretcher was placed on these and thus an operating table was formed Shells were made to hold our instruments, trays and bottles. These were all in charge of Staff Sergeant Henderson, a most capable and willing assistant. Close by a kitchen was made and the cook kept constantly employed keeping a supply of hot water, bovril, milk and biscuits ready for the men when they came in wounded, for well, they had to be fed as well as medically attended to. Incidents and yarns never ceased admiring our men and their cheeriness under these circumstances and their droll remarks caused us many a laugh one man just blown up by a shell informed us that it was a banky of a place no place to take a lady another told of a mishap to his cobber who picked up a bomb and blew on it to make it light all at once he blew his blanky head off God blimey you would have laughed for lurid and perfervid language commend me to the australian tommy profanity uses from him like music from a barrel organ at the same time he will give you his idea of the situation almost without exception in an optimistic strain generally concluding his observation with the intimation that we gave him hell i have seen scores of them lying wounded and yet chatting to one another while waiting their turn to be dressed The stretcher-bearers were a fine body of men. Prior to this campaign, the Army Medical Corps was always looked upon as a soft job. In peacetime we had to submit to all sorts of flippant remarks, and were called linseed lancers, body-snatchers, and other cheery and jovial names. But thanks to Abdul and the cordiality of his reception, the AAMC can hold up their heads with any of the fighting troops. It was a common thing to hear men say this beach is a hell of a place the trenches are better than this the praises of the stretcher bearers were in all the men's mouths enough could not be said in their favour owing to the impossibility of landing the transport all the wounded had to be carried often for a distance of a mile and a half in blazing sun and through shrapnel and machine-gun fire but there was never a flinch Through it all they went and performed their duty. Of our ambulance, a hundred and eighty-five men and officers landed, and when I relinquished command, forty-three remained. At one time we were losing so many bearers that carrying during the daytime was abandoned, and orders were given it should only be undertaken after nightfall. On one occasion a man was being sent off to the hospital ship from our tent in the gully he was not very bad but he felt like being carried down as the party went along the beach, beachy bill became active one of the bearers lost his leg the other was wounded but the man who was being carried down got up and ran all the remarks i have made regarding the intrepidity and valour of the stretcher bearers applies also to the regimental bearers these are made up from the bandsmen very few people think when they see the band leading the battalion in parade through the streets what happens to them on active service. Here bands are not thought of, the instruments are left at the base, and the men become bearers and carry the wounded out of the front line for the ambulance men to carry. Many a stretcher-bearer has deserved the VC. One of ours told me that they had reached a man severely wounded in the leg. "'in close proximity to his dugout. "'After he had been placed on the stretcher "'and made comfortable, "'he was asked whether there was anything "'he would like to take with him. "'He pondered a bit and said, "'Oh, you might give me my diary. "'I would like to make a note of this "'before I forget it.' "'It can be readily understood "'that in dealing with large bodies of men "'such as ours, "'a considerable degree of organisation "'is necessary.' "'in order to keep an account, not only of the man, "'but of the nature of his injury or illness, as the case may be, "'and of his destination. "'Without method, chaos would soon reign. "'As each casualty came in, he was examined and dressed or operated upon "'as the necessity arose. "'Sergeant Baxter then got orders from the officer "'as to where the case was to be sent.' A ticket was made out containing the man's name, his regimental number, the nature of his complaint, whether Morphia had been administered and the quantity, and finally his destination. All this was also recorded in our books, and returns made weekly, both to headquarters and to the base. Cases likely to recover in a fortnight's time were sent by fleet sweeper to Mandros. The others were embarked on the hospital ship they were placed in barges and towed out by a pinnace to the trawler and by that to the hospital ship where the cases were sorted out when once they had left the beach our knowledge of them ceased and of course our responsibility one man arriving at the hospital ship was describing with the usual picturesque invective how a bullet had got into his shoulder one of the officers who apparently was unacquainted with the australian vocabulary said what was that you said, my man? The reply came, A blighter over there put a bullet in here. At a later period a new gun had come into action on our left, which the men christened Windy Annie. Beechey Bill occupied the olive grove and was on our right. Annie was getting the range of our dressing station pretty accurately, and requisition on the engineers invoked the information that sandbags were not available however the army service came to our rescue with some old friends the forty-niners three tiers of these in their boxes defied the shells just as they defied our teeth as the sickness began to be more manifest it became necessary to enlarge the accommodation in our gully the hill was dug out and the soil placed in bags with which a wall was built the intervening portion being filled up with the remainder of the hill by this means we were able to pitch a second tent and house more of those who were slightly ill it was in connection with this engineering scheme that i found the value of warrant officer cosgrove he was possessed of a good deal of the suvata in modo and it was owing to his dexterous handling of ordnance that we got such a fine supply of bags this necessitated a redistribution of dugouts and the line of them was constructed sufficient to take a section of bearers. The men christened this Shrapnel Avenue. They called my dugout the Nut because it held the Colonel. I offer this with every apology. It's not my joke. The new dugouts were not too safe. Murphy was killed there one afternoon. Called Grime badly wounded later on. Claws caused a great deal of amusement he had a rooted objection to putting on clothes and wore only a hat, pants, boots and his smile. Consequently, his body became quite mahogany coloured. When he was wounded, he was put under an anaesthetic so I could search for the bullet. As the anaesthetic began to take effect, Claude talked the usual unintelligible gibberish. Now, we happened to have a Turkish prisoner at the time. And in the midst of Claude's struggles and shouts, in rushed an interpreter. He took round and promptly came over to Claude, uttering words which I suppose were calculated to soothe a wounded Turk, and we had some difficulty in assuring him that the other man, not Claude, was the Turk he was in quest of. of Part two